103. Hey, this is Tim Schaefbo, host of Rock Pile on KPCA LP. On my show, I spin a mix of rock and roll, R&B, punk, surf, rockabilly, and other cool stuff. Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome to our biweekly program where we take an opportunity to meet people from our community who are connected in many ways with various lives and hopefully making for a better community here in southern Sonoma County. So today I want to welcome to our studio uh, Paige Green and Sarah Sechik, who have uh, devoted their volunteer time and their personal efforts to working on an issue of diversity and inclusion in our public schools. Welcome to our welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we don't have cameras on today, so we're we're perfectly fine here. <laughs> we're going to relax and have a um, a good conversation. Um, so first of all, just b- before we get into the politics of Tide, the name of their group, and I'll tell you more about that in a bit. Just a little bit about who you are and how long you've been in Petaluma and background and families and stuff. Uh, Paige, you want to start? Sure. So I have been in Petaluma since 2005. My husband and I moved up here to be close to my uh, mother-in-law. Mimi Luberman has a ranch uh, on Chilena Valley Road. So we moved up here uh, to be helpful and and, uh, have lived here ever since. Wow. And what do you do? Do you, uh, aside from, you do this full time with Tide? Um, well, it's growing. I am a photographer, so I started okay. my business also in 2005. So. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay, Sarah? Um, <clears throat> my name is Sarah Sychik Sebastian, um, and I've been a Petaluma resident since 2005. I'm from San Francisco, I grew up between San Francisco and Sonoma County. Um, and I have three children here in town, um, 12, 10, and 2. Um, I come from a varied family background made up of immigrants, queer folk, gender-fluid people, and people of color. Um, I'm a Jew, and I present as a white woman, and my pronouns are she and hers. Okay, thank you. And anything else you want to add about your children? Your yes, children? I also have two children to two children. One is in second grade and one's in kindergarten. And I'm also white and I am also, um, my pronouns are she and her. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. So uh, how, did, how did you get into this, uh, this mission, uh, a mission that you have uh, to deal with issues of diversity and inclusivity in our schools. Where did that come from in your life? Yeah, well, so living here, um, Paloma is, it feels like a predominantly white town. That's not the truth, um, but it feels that way. And I had often been concerned of, like, how do we raise children who are culturally aware and sensitive and um, in this community? And, um, and I wasn't sure um, how, as a white woman, with white children living in a predominantly white town, how I was going to help or should help um, um, or be involved. But I went to, in January last year, the um, North Bay um, 
organizing project in Indivisible Petaluma uh, held the Women's March in Petaluma, and there some brave high school students got up and talked about how hard it is to be a person of color in Petaluma in our schools and in our community. And hearing that, um, I had always been concerned about the white-on-white -white conflict in Petaluma, the conservative versus liberal, but I hadn't considered, considered the minority perspective, and hearing those voices um, moved me. And then, But then it wasn't until um, the Petaluma Community Relations Council held the forum at the, at the Petaluma Library um, about bias and inclusivity, and, um, and I went to that and again heard students of color and other members of our community talk about how hard it is to be a person of color in this community, and, um, and I left there feeling um, very charged and, 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 and frustrated, and, and I particularly have a student who, um, my eldest child, because has school-based anxiety, and so we've been at three schools in three years chasing the counseling system. And so I knew that um, schools were a great place. It's a great place for um, to to talk about and to deal with some of these issues. And but but that each school is so different. It doesn't matter how um, how advanced or progressive one school is. We're all going to end up in the same pot in middle school and high school. And so um, after being at three schools in three years, I was like, we need a team um, at each school. And I did some shouting on Facebook. Um, and through that, um, we had. 17 women show up for our first for our first meeting, and luckily we had some smart people there. Instead of I, I we were brainstorming names, and instead of diet, um, <laughs> diversity, <laughs> diversity, equity, and yeah, team. we okay, became yeah. we be, we did, we decided together um, that we would be tied team okay. for inclusivity, diversity, and equity. And yeah. so um, yeah, so we're 17 women from the six different schools and three different districts, and so now we. Um, we've been working for 10 months. We're 10 months uh, new and strong, and we we're very aware that um, that people have been doing this work for a very long time, and we're very new to this work, um, and um, we're learning, we're making mistakes, but we are we just want to do what we can to uh, bring people together. It's a community problem, and we're trying to have a community effort to to make it better, make sure everybody feels welcome and included in our schools and community. And Sarah, what, where, how did you get connected? Where did that happen for you? Um, I would say that this connection probably is a long time coming. I studied community studies at UC Santa Cruz um, way back when. And then I lived abroad in Cuba for quite some time and then came back and worked in outdoor education with disadvantaged youth in nature and saw how amazing that growth could be. And soon realized how non-profitable non-profit work was, and as I needed to grow my, uh, my capacity and support my family, I got into many different things, which brought me into real estate, and that was able to kind of fund my life. And after Paige, I heard Paige, I guess what she said, ranting on, on Facebook, but sharing her experience that I had it woke me up again to the work that I actually really hold in my heart. And helping people find homes is incredibly important, and also making people feel at home in the community, because community is home, is incredibly important. And so I dove right back into what feels like a drive and a place where we can have the most impact is in our local community. And how do we do that is with our children. How do we do that is in our schools. How do we do that is having these kinds of conversations. How do we 
um, make our place more kind? How do we make our place more inclusive and very importantly representative of our community so that we can raise a community that really does truly support each other? Petaluma is a very supportive community and it's important to make sure that those arms of support and that structure and that scaffolding actively represents our entire community. Yeah, I remember that night last January at the Petaluma Library, of course, I was a front part of the part of that. Uh, and following that night, we actually had a few of the people who participated on the radio here. Matthew Harris, uh, Assistant Superintendent of our Petaluma City School System. Uh, Luthia was on here, Gay from Casa Grande High School. Uh, others who uh, were participants, so the the issue became alive uh, from our perspective in the community, and really, really are pleased and appreciate that you picked up the cudgel and continued to work on it. I think uh, we went. We were also over at Casa Grande High School one day. I think Paige, you were there. Were you there that day, Sarah? I don't remember if you were there. And began the discussion with the then principal and. Uh, the staff there and took a little tour of the school to begin to widen this issue and to be raise consciousness about it in our community. So what is that? Go, yeah, well, go I, I was going to say what I wanted to mention from the um, forum, what I really learned, which really drove me to, to action, was to hear um, the, um, the, the um, the Sonoma County Junior Commission on Human Rights did the survey um, in Sonoma County at the high schools, and they presented that at the forum that night. Where the results of the survey were, they did a survey of students, and they asked, you know, um, if they had experienced um, discrimination or uh, racial bias, and uh, they they tallied the surveys, and they're like, oh, it's pretty good. They're not that, the numbers aren't that bad. But then they took out the re the responses of um, the white the white students, and 100% of students of color had experienced discrimination or bias um, in schools. And so that really struck me, again, kind of as the, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, so, uh, you know, the, we need, we and we, as, you know, as a white person, I need to, um, what I can do is I can educate myself, I can learn, and I can help, and I can talk with other white families and individuals. It's like 10 months ago, I didn't know um, a, a lot of the terms I didn't know about um, uh, announcing my pronouns. I didn't know what cisgender meant. I didn't know um, about the term Latinx. And so um, just really paying attention and learning and learning how to be allies and how to uh, help uh, and, and uh, listen and support our community members who have not been listened to for, for a long time. It's also incredibly important, and thank you so much for being there and putting together that forum, because it was at that forum that the inspiration for TIDE really kind of took hold. And so it's incredibly important that we honor and give thanks to the multitude of people who have been doing this for generations before us, you know, for hundreds of years, really. But in this community, so many people have been doing the work in Sebastopol, in Sonoma, in Santa Rosa, in in, even here in Petaluma um, that we have now gotten together with. So we have fiscal sponsorship with Petaluma People Services and Elise Hempel has been in this community doing this kind of work forever and as you and I spoke in a previous conversation, I think she's on every board in Petaluma. Um, she has helped us incredibly. Demetra Smith, who started Save Your Six, which is um, an organization directly um, created to help 
get out the word on what Title VI is, which is in regards to, um, is that gender? Uh, no. Racial. Racial. Um, I'm sorry, Dimitri. It's about race, <laughs> ethnicity, and national origin. Thank you very much. And yeah. that it's required to be done in schools. And that work has been being done for quite some time tires, tirelessly. The um, Petaluma Blacksburg community development have been here for generations also. Faith Ross is on our leadership team. And it's really important that we are working on on continuing this and leveraging our privilege to be able to make sure that we can remove the obstacles so that those who have been doing this work can be heard. And it's kind of moving along with and in collaboration with people who have been doing this for so long. And our learning curve is steep. And we are so thankful for those who have been sticking with us and being a um, accountability force for us. So thank you to everyone. That is first and foremost. What you're reminding me of is the fact that uh, this work never stops, right? And unfortunately, it probably never will. When I was director of Jewish Family and Children's Services in the East Bay, we engaged a group called Diversity Matters from Berkeley, and we're doing trainings in the community among our staff. We had multilingual staff. We had various ethnicities on staff serving the Vietnamese community, the Russian community, uh, the uh, Iranian community. I mean, we, it was just, and some of the issues, but you have to keep working at it. That's just the way it is. And so uh, having you pick up the cudgel if we're in this community and do your piece and is, is so important. Could we do a brief stab at defining discrimination and bias? So that, and, and find out what, what is the starting point for you, uh, what does that mean? Does that mean uh, when a student says he or she has experienced discrimination or bias, uh, teachers grading unfairly, is that what it is? Or uh, not calling on that person in class, or another student in the school is making wisecracks about that person's color, ethnicity, what, help, help us get an idea of what, what the starting point for that is. Paige, I see you Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. It's everything. I think to start with even before that is the acknowledgement and understanding that um, most of our curriculum has been written by white people and tells the story of white people. So we can start there of the idea of that. Um, so discrimination could even be that, the fact that students of color have no representation in the books that they're reading and the lessons that they're learning. And, and similarly, LGBTQ uh, communities, although we have the FAIR Act now, which luckily makes it it's a legal requirement to also have um, representation to, be, to teach um, about LGBTQ people, individuals from kindergarten through high school. That's the law now. So, so it's, it's the curriculum. It's, it's educating the teachers on um, on the on proper the fact that um, you know I think disciplining happens more um, with students of color that it, um, students of color if you look in, in the, through I don't know the statistics but um, they're typically more likely to receive harsher punishments and discipline than and than white students and um, I think if we even take a moment and step back further to looking at how. Racism and white supremacy is something that is woven within the fabric of our nation. It's woven into the fabric of our systems, whether it be people who were not able to get loans to purchase property 
who were people of color up until well into the 70s and even more so now. If we're talking about levels of privilege that happen that are systematic. And so bias happens. We, we swim in it. And regardless of whether or not we individually, like I would say before this work, I would say, oh, no, I'm not a racist. I don't do any of that. It's behavior. It's actions. It's I, I live in that privilege. I don't even, even have to think about it because I'm not affected by it. So to me, there's something that is more pervasive than, you know, a kid bullying someone at school, which does happen. Whether or not someone on the blacktop is saying, don't do that, that's gay. You know, that does happen, but it's not necessarily the overt actions every day because we do live in a very nice town. And sometimes nice can be the opposite and a very... Um, a challenge to get over when it comes to really working on the systems that were built in a by people who didn't necessarily think of including all. And so we have to then come back to how do we bring everyone up to the same equity level. And that's where I think that it's really important to get into systems and policy change. And I think you'll notice, remember, at the at the forum, I mean, it was mostly people of color talking about hard it is, right. how hard it was, and it was all white people talking about in the administrator and teacher and police okay. and everybody. Um, so even in all of our schools, I was trying to get the numbers from our district to, to, to tell me, like, how many teachers of color do we have in our in our schools? And they can't give me that number yet. So right. so that idea of, like, we, we do not have representation in our in our our administration, uh, the school board is starting to get more diverse. The um, school board and the district, and when I say the district, I'm talking about Petaluma City Schools. Because in Petaluma, we have multiple districts right. that, again, as Paige said, feed into, um, feed into the junior high and the high school. And they have been. Uh, Old Adobe School District has, um, as a result of a lot of work and advocacy by Amor Para Todos and APT, have um, raised funds to have welcoming schools come in to do anti-bias training for teachers and staff. Petaluma City Schools now, as a result of listening to the community, are moving forward. And they are working with um, trying to find an organization that will help uh, train the board, the administration, the staff, certificated staff, and classified staff on anti-bias training. So there is movement that is happening. The community is listening, and we are here to work together in conjunction with as many different people as we can, every single walk of life. Because as a woman who we've been reading, as the woman, Adrienne Marie Brown, who's been reading this book that right now is kind of like my pillar, um, she's an amazing woman and thought leader in this work called Emergent Strategy. And it's collaborative ideation. The more people, she says, the more people who co-create the future, the more people whose concerns will be addressed on a fundamental level. So if we can really get the teams, the teams are really at the core of TIDE. It's team for inclusivity, diversity, and equity. And so um, each team is meant to be comprised of the impacted group. So it's impacted leadership. What we're looking for is leadership of the communities that are directly impacted by racial injustice, by gender injustice, by um, ableism, by people who have learning disabilities. So those are the voices that we need at the table to lead us and say, those who cannot see, 
Those who are, as Tara says, have the privilege of oblivion. Those who do not need to see because they're not impacted by it daily, meaning us white people, who do not see it every day because we're not impacted, need to be led by vision and hear the stories and listen with open ears to what is really happening so that we can lead, so we can lend our privileged support. Because it is our privilege, which is, again, as Adrian Marie Brown says, the intentional support for impacted leadership from communities and people that identify their privilege and want to see a rebalancing of power. So Paige and I are here as representatives of people of privilege to support impacted groups and do whatever we can to use their leadership to make this change happen. So tell me about some of the things that you have done over the past 10 months since you were born, yeah. since this group was born. So we have um, we've established, we have six schools, six uh-huh. elementary schools that have a Thai group, and um, which is, is exciting. Um, and, and, it, and those six schools, they are, you know, step one is um, make friends with your with your principal and um, have a have a, a listening lunch with your teachers to really hear and understand what's happening at your school and um, to get the pulse of the school like because each school like we said is very different and has different needs so um, so we have six six schools um, that we are and we are we're actively doing outreach and have had you know we had our, our last training we had we held a training a community training step one we were Tara, uh, Sarah and I were we're like, we need training. We don't know what we're doing. This is brand new to us. Like, how do we do this work? And um, so we're like, we need training. And we could pay thousands of dollars and go somewhere else. Or we're like, maybe there are other people who need training too. So we um, so we found this wonderful woman, Tara Fleming, who has an organization called Start Dialogue. And she has been very generous with us and offered um, to come help work out with our community. So we, um, we, Sarah and I were like, okay, let's just do it. And we put down our credit cards and we were like, we're going to, and we had no idea whether anybody would come or sign up. We, we scheduled four trainings um, in, um, in this, this past fall. And we had, um, we offered it. Again, we wanted it to be accessible to everyone. So we made it free for teachers and staff and administrators in our school system. Um, and we made it sliding scale for everyone else, starting at $10. And um, the first training we were expecting, we had 20 people signed up, and we had 40 people show up. Um, and so we were at capacity for all the rest of them, and we were able to cover the cost, which was amazing. It also showed us that people really also are really eager, eager to learn and want to um, to do to learn and to do the right thing and to help others. So we're super excited by that and look forward to um, doing more trainings in our community. Um, and we, we met. We we had a conversation we're like where how to how do we get you know we can't train everybody so how do we how do we get access so we were like we started thinking about breaking it down into different focus groups and one of them was like libraries libraries are great they're like the doorway um, to you know to add to knowledge and so we we met with um, Alex Parado is a librarian over at Loma Vista and we we came up with the idea like let's have a training for all of the librarians in our school, because we also learned that the uh, librarians mostly at our um, their cert, uh, I can never remember classified, classified staff. staff, which means they they don't necessarily even have to have um, they have to have a professional development days. Yeah, so um, so we decided to have a training to, for the librarians um, to to one to figure out how to diversify the books that are in the in the collections at the schools, and um, and so we. Through that process, through that process, what we did was we 
um, wrote to the head librarian and said, we would really like to have a training for librarians. Librarians get to see all of the students in, in the school, and um, we would like to facilitate a training for that. And the head librarian, who's at Casa Grande, said, that's wonderful. I would, that would be great. Let me go back to the district and see if that's something we can do. And as a result of that request and his work over the past years and advocacy for it, and I think because of the way that the district is embracing all of this, he came back and said, yes, let's do it. So now librarians get two half-day professional development days, which didn't exist before. Um, one of the other, so we have libraries that are working policy change. One of the goals that we have is to have teams in every each school, pre-K to 12, public and private. We'd like to have, advocate for policy change by being on the different boards of, uh, or being on the different committees and boards. We want to advocate for representation in the district's administration, teachers and staff. We want to do more trainings for the community. And we want to be a resource hub for collaboration between districts and other communities. So if we could take what we built and help people and put it in different locations, that would be great. And what we need is people to join and be part of our team. So uh, what should the listeners do? Call They shouldn't necessarily call me, so please tell them what they should do. We have a Facebook page. Okay. Um, we have a website, um, which is in construction, but you okay. can email Paige or I at petaluma.tide um, at gmail.com. Petaluma.tide at gmail.com. Correct. And we really need people to come in and be part of our core group. If you'd like to start a Tide group at your school, we would love to talk to you about that. If you would like to donate money because you don't have time, that's wonderful. If you're good at writing grants, we would love to talk with you about that as well. And also, we don't, even if you don't, we have some amazing volunteers in our group who are retired. They don't have kids in the school, but they are passionate about. Um, education and about kids, and so they're on our team there. We have a team that's help, going to help us with uh, preschool. So, yeah, it, it's a community issue. It's a community effort to to over, to work together. So we, everybody is welcome to be a part of this movement. Please join. Wow, wow. So I really, it's so exciting actually to hear. I got your email the other day that described uh, some of the accomplishments which you've shared and uh, really proud that our community has such a group now working really hard uh, to make a difference in our schools. So Sarah and Paige, I want to thank you for joining me on Talking with Rabbi Ted. And uh, good luck in your continued work. I look forward to working with you as we move forward. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. And thank you for your work in the community. And you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA, LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Please join us for our second segment in three minutes. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. Again, I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of the Bay Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California. In our studio for the second segment, I've invited Andrea Rogers from Parent Sorensen Mortuary here. A little different topic than our first uh, segment today, uh, but uh, from my perspective, certainly, and I know from hers, uh, the work that she does is, uh, while it's difficult at times and challenging, uh, it's also so important for all of us to understand uh, the work and understand that uh, how we approach that stage of life for ourselves and for our families can make a big difference. Uh, in our community, in our families, and inside of our souls. So, Andrea, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. You're, yeah, is this your first time on radio? Yes, it is. Oh, we have some tricks we have to pull on you <laughs> to uh, see what this will do, you know. Um, before we get into the, the, par- the mortuary part and the funeral director part, tell us a little bit about you know, were you born in Petaluma? How, what's, your, what's your background a little bit? Yes, I was born here in Petaluma up at Hillcrest Hospital, which doesn't exist anymore, but uh, it's now a care facility. But I was born and raised, went to school here, graduated St. Vincent's High School, and went to college just down in San Rafael. Started working for my dad at age 19 at the mortuary, and here I am 20 years later. Wow. Okay, so you've been doing this for a long a time. A bit, yes. Bit. Yeah. Yeah, I guess one one of the questions is, you know, what was it like for a woman getting into this? Uh, when you started, was what was were there many women involved in the funeral directors, etc.? Um, there were a few. There uh-huh. were a few back then. Uh, they have since moved on. We've got new staff and everything, uh-huh. but it typically has been a male-dominated business, right? And it it has changed over the years, and I've seen that in um, our funeral home and other funeral homes here in California, across the states, um, but I I still get some funny looks when it's, you know, two females uh, walking caskets, lifting caskets, and, uh, yeah, sure. and bodies, but we're here. We can do it. We've got the strength. You've got the strength, <laughs> we've got and the strength. You've, yeah. you've got the inner strength, yes. too, and yes. that's, uh, that's so. the part. So what was it like when you were 19 going into this business, and has that changed for you over the years? And just personally, I'm yeah, about that. yeah, it has because I wasn't supposed to be a funeral director. Right. Um, I was supposed to be a teacher, a high school teacher, uh-huh. and um, it was just kind of a job through the summer to pass the time, make some extra cash, and and I stuck with it. I the more I learned about the business and the families that I served. Um, and the care that I was providing to them, the more I loved it. And I, I graduated with my degree, but I went straight to work again for my dad at the mortuary, and I've been there ever since. I took over from him when he retired, and it's just been very fulfilling. Um, I would do it no matter what. How many years has this been in your family? Uh, my dad started back in the early 60s, okay. and he was with uh, Sorensen Funeral Home and Parent Funeral Home when they were separate, and then they merged them together. 
Oh, back okay. in the very early 80s, 82. Oh, okay. So he was in the business for 45, 50 years. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. And, you know, one of the um, one of the hard parts uh, I can imagine uh, you know, would ask, like, well, socially, when you go out and meet people and you tell them what you do, what is that like for you? And what what has that been like over there? Because you know, you're a young woman and... <laughs> Uh, young men who are in this, and what is that like? Um, when I get asked, I get a when I say what I do, I'm a funeral director for the mortuary. They kind of just look at me, and then I get a million questions. How uh, does how does this work? What do you do? How do you deal with this? How do you deal with that? And I have to answer them as honestly as I possibly can, but tactfully at the same time. Right, right. Um, it's people are very inquisitive because they don't know, or their families haven't talked a lot about death. So they want to know what happens, how things proceed, uh-huh. different situations. Has, has that part of it, the people talking about it, changed in the 20 years of your experience? I think so, but there are still a lot who have not talked about it. I meet with families every day who said, well, we don't know what mom or dad wanted because we never talked about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a good conversation to have. It's a tough one, for sure. But it is a good conversation to have. Um, and I think more and more people are starting to talk about it a, a little bit uh, just by they're, they're coming in, they're making their own prearrangements, they're letting their wishes be known to their children or other family members. So it is becoming more widely spread, and, but it needs more. It still needs more, so that people are more prepared when the time comes. When the time comes, yeah. What uh, you know, you you meet people at a uh, very vulnerable time in their lives and sad time for them. And uh, uh, most people, I've had funerals in which I've been involved where people feel relieved that this, the death has occurred. If somebody was sick in pain for a long time. Um, so. Uh, is part of training for a funeral director? Are you trained in the emotional parts of it? In the what happens when you study for this? And what is there a licensing process? Is there a training process? What's what, what's that like? I have no idea. Yeah. So there is a licensing. It's at least for a funeral director, which uh-huh. I am a funeral director, right. and uh, I, t- I took my class. I passed my California state test. Um, but really, the training comes by listening and being involved in other directors' arrangements. So those who I was training under, uh-huh. so my dad or my business partner, you know, many years ago. And then it's just hands-on. You learn by listening to people, watching others. I have just sat in on a bunch of arrangements when I was younger, and you learn the different dynamics of families, how to address issues that are occurring within those families. Um, some are just fine with each other. Other families, there's friction. Yeah. So you have to navigate, you have to be able to navigate between emotions that are very, very raw at such a vulnerable time. And really, it's it's just... Learning as you go. You know, I, I actually think that um, 
many professions, particularly helping professions, clergy, etc. The learning is on the job. You can sit in the courses in school and uh, a pastoral psychologist can teach you this and can teach you that and you get background, but you learn from people, from your experience, and uh, I think that's the case for, for many, many people in many kinds of professions. Um, so what, what is the process uh, for, that people should know about uh, to plan for a funeral? Uh, what, what do they need to do? So I think the hardest part is, you know, calling to make the appointment or walking through the door. After that, it's very easy because as a funeral director, we're there to guide you through every step of the way. And really, you just need to set that appointment and you can come in with any questions. We can answer 99% of them um, and guide you through the different decisions and the different information that is necessary or required for whatever you want to take place, whether that's a very traditional service, burial, or even cremation. Um, so it really is just at least picking up the phone and making a phone call, and then we take it from there. We guide you through everything. Yeah, and that, um, people still have lots of decisions to make when they're being guided, right? Correct. Uh, there are lots of decisions. Uh, yes, and, and we, we pose those questions and give, you know, the different options uh-huh. that are out there, and they can make their decision based on the information that we provide. As I understand, uh, cremations are becoming more and more popular, so to speak. That's a very difficult word to use in this context, but uh, more and more occurring uh, than in ground burials. Is that that the case? That is true, and it's uh, becoming, and it's more and more widely spread even throughout the United States, but especially California, East Coast, metropolitan areas, they're, they're definitely seeing a rise in the cremation. Is that because of cost or land issues, uh, burial issues? Um. I, yes, I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's all of those things. It's cost. It's definitely um, less costly to have a cremation arrangement. Um, people may not necessarily have a lot of family around anymore, so they just go with a cremation arrangement and deal with the ashes. It's that they don't want to bother anybody else. They don't want to have services, so they think, oh, I'll just do this instead. Uh-huh. But funerals, memorials, they're for the living, you know? Right. Can you give uh, a, a range of costs on uh, cremation versus, and of course, we're not even talking here with burial. The plot is a separate piece. I understand that, but just to arrange. Yeah. So for at least for our funeral home, right. our direct cremation, meaning no formal services, just transfer, cremation, and the ashes um, handed back to family, somewhere. Around eighteen to nineteen hundred dollars, give or take. Uh-huh. Um, it can vary depending on different urns that are available for selection, but that's a pretty average uh-huh. cost. And uh, more formal. More formal. You're getting. You can get into depending on the casket selected. Right. You can get into seven, eight, twelve, 
$1,000 range. But it just depends on how involved and how detailed the services are and the casket that is selected. So here's a, here's a hard business question, which is well, not everybody can afford even $1,800 or $2,000, right? Right. Have to, what, happens, what happens with them? I've, I've actually had a question the other day from somebody who doesn't have funds available and thinking about pre-need and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I told them I was going to ask you <laughs> on the air, so here you are. Okay. So one of the great benefits about making pre-arrangements is that you can make your decisions and get your pricing, and then you can have a payment plan. So you uh-huh. can pay down. You know, you're not required to come up with X amount of dollars right up front. Okay. And you can make those payments monthly, and they can be $100 a month. They can be $50 a month. You know, it doesn't matter as long as it just keeps keeps getting paid down. And it's very helpful to have that flexibility and to be able to prepay, and it takes the burden off the family at the time of need. Okay. And if somebody really can't afford? We definitely try to work with everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes that doesn't always quite work out, or maybe they don't have family who can take care of the arrangements at the time. Most of the time when that happens, though, it's actually the, the county that steps in, okay. and they take over. Okay. They, they've got the, the rights to do that, or okay. they, they can do that. All right. So there are some means available yes. out there to help people who Correct. actually can't, uh, can't afford. I've always, I've always wondered when I hear about somebody who's homeless that die, who dies and they found the body and what happens with that burial and uh, how that's handled. So right. is that done through the county? That's done that? through the county, uh-huh. Sonoma County up at the coroner's office. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next question is uh, God versus non-God. So people who have burial or... Do most people have clergy come in to do services, or some people who are atheists, non-religious, prefer, are not part of a religious tradition? What happens? So you'll definitely see more services for those who are associated with a particular faith or religion, uh-huh. certainly. Um, but we do, we do have services for those who are not, mm-hmm. and... When that happens, you typically see somebody who is a very good friend who comes in to say whatever sort of services that that they uh, would like to have. Right. I, so. I mean, from my perspective and from my tradition, and I, I have to assume from most traditions, the, the key is, is uh, paying honor to the person who has died. Correct. And um, so the focus of the service... Uh, even when I do my services there, uh, the the prayers and the the traditions around it are just the fluff, but that the the essence of it is giving the opportunity to remember the person who died. Right. Uh, you know, I remember being taught that uh, that uh, there was a guy who was so miserable to ever. So his point, his positive point in his eulogy was. He treated everybody equally, uh, you know, searching for that kind of thing, because we do want to acknowledge that every human life is of value, and 
uh, hopefully we can take some time in, in this saying farewell to the person to be able to acknowledge that. So uh, that's there. And I'm sure you've heard all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things, as have I, uh, in this context. Um, so pre-need, uh, are more and more people doing the pre-need stuff? They are. Yeah. And it's really good to see. Uh -huh. It really helps when the time comes. There aren't as many questions left unanswered. People know ahead of time what mom and dad, aunt, uncle, you know, would wanted to have as far as services or types of arrangements. And it really, it can take the financial burden off of others uh -huh. at the time. And so we are seeing a little bit more and more, uh -huh. which is, is great. Even if it's just wishes on paper, at least yeah. families know. So what happens to that money uh, in pre-need? Where, where does that go? The funds are set aside into either a trust account or an insurance policy, and over time it, it gains interest. Uh -huh. So hopefully by the time the person passes away, there will be enough funds to cover any sort of inflation that has occurred over the years. But if not, our goods and services are price guaranteed. So that means that if there isn't enough money in the account, that's our problem, not right. the family's. Right. So the, one of the advantages of pre-need is to lock in, so yes. to speak, uh, the current prices. That's right. Uh, and uh, I mean, when I hear the word the funeral industry, right, you've heard that term, of course, it, it always sounds such a, you know, because I, of course, meet the people when the moments are happening and it's an emotional and a, per a very personal thing. So the word industry associated with that, but it is indeed a business. And uh, the pre-need is one way for people to be able to save money actually in the long run Correct. Uh, in preparing for those moments. Um, yeah. Any, um, you know, any anecdotes that you can pull out of your head? And if you can't, that's perfectly fine. We're... We're uh, an easygoing conversation <laughs> here of, uh, you know, people who are uh, surprised, touched, um, you know, things that have stood out that you remember uh, from, pe from experience that you've had over these past 20 years that really would help people to understand what these moments are like. Um, probably one of the best things anybody you know, has ever said is, thank you, number one, thank yeah. you, but that what we have done for them has just made everything else so much easier for them. Yeah. They're going through a hard enough time as it is with family members grieving that any service burden being lifted, anything like that has made their lives easier. And you know, they're very appreciative, and that's that's probably what gets me the most is how appreciative families actually are of the service that we provide. So maybe not necessarily an anecdote, but right. right. But I, I also hear that from my community when they work with you, they the appreciation they have for the kindness and availability and sensitivity that you all have displayed. So I will say thank you also <laughs> to you. Thank you. Um, I also would uh, just uh, 
uh, you know, the Jewish community has its own rites, R-I-T-E-S, uh, that uh, go with burial. And uh, we actually have a, a burial society. It's called the Hebra Kedisha, which some families who want a traditional burial, from a Jewish point of view, um, call in, and uh, they help prepare the body. The body is washed and dressed. And in the Jewish tradition, the body is dressed in what we call tachrichin, which are shrouds, so that everybody is actually equal at that moment of death. Nobody is wearing jewelry or tuxedos or their prom dress or uh, anything like that. And what has it been like for you to watch the evolution of that Hebra Kedisha over the years? And when you first encountered it, uh, did, was that, oh, what, what, what kind of traditions are these? And what was that like? So when I first encountered it, that was 20 years ago, there wasn't really the society. They they hadn't fully formed yet. And uh-huh. so maybe every now and then um, they would come in, whether it be the group of ladies or the group of men. But it didn't happen often. And now that the society is formed and we've got contacts, and um, it's been really great to see uh, – the care that the society puts forth towards the those who are deceased. And um, I've been able to learn a little bit more about the culture and the tradition over the years. And it, it's been pretty amazing to see um, all of that come to fruition. Yeah, in, uh, in Jewish tradition, we call that the... Uh a chesed shall emet, a true deed of loving kindness for the care that is going to the deceased, to, to this person, that person can't say thank you. And so, obviously, but it, it's not meant as, as, a, as a joke, it's meant as a truism that the fact is that the deeds that the Hebra Kedisha, that the men for the men's group and the women for the women's group are doing our acts of loving kindness and cleansing the body and preparing it for burial is that act of loving kindness. And we uh, generally, of course, don't do embalming and try to bury as quickly as possible uh, following the death. But the the, the Hebra Kedisha work is uh, is really a, um, uh, a very important part of, of our tradition. And again, we appreciate the accommodations that Parents Thornton has made to allow the groups to come in and to help with our families in that way. It's really, really good. And, uh, and yeah, in fact, it, it reminds me that perhaps I should invite uh, one of the members of the Hever Kadisha to come in and sit here and have this discussion because there's a lot to be said about it. And, that would be wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the uh, 70s, uh, way before you were born, uh, back in the 70s, uh, when a, a lot of focus on dying and uh, etc. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who was uh, the famous uh, deaf teacher, um, talked about Jewish rights and uh, the value that they had uh, for the families and for the survivors, as well as for honoring uh, the deceased. And so we tried to continue uh, that uh, that tradition. Um, so, th- does Parent Sorensen have uh, other 
Chapel, are you part of a couple of other places? Yes, we are. So we have our main facility here in Petaluma, Parent Sorensen, but we do have two other funeral homes here in Sonoma County, Parent Sorensen Mortuary, Sebastopol, as well as Lafferty and Smith Colonial Chapel in Santa Rosa. Okay. And, of course, in Petaluma, there is another funeral home. Correct. There's Adobe Funeral Home uh, here in town. Yes. It serves our community also in a kind and compassionate way. Um, and um, uh, do the different communities have different needs? Have you noticed that Santa Rosa and Petaluma and Sebastopol, there, are there different cultural pieces to the communities? There are. Um, here in Petaluma, you can definitely see that we're still uh, very traditional, at least more traditional. And then, of course, in Santa Rosa, it's a bigger community. Uh-huh. Um, so you do see, for instance, more cremation, maybe not as many burials or traditional burials. And then in Sebastopol, it's kind of like a mix of uh-huh. Santa Rosa and Petaluma put together. You still have the old, old-time old Sebastopol with, that's very traditional, and then the, the newer cremation, you know, higher on the cremation side. So it's kind of just a, a mix of the two put uh-huh. together. Yeah, it's amazing that different communities uh, develop different cultures around it. Um, how would you advise, and we have about one minute or so left, um, how would you advise families to begin their conversation? I would advise families to begin their conversation just probably openly and honestly and saying, hey, you know, we need to, to take care of this, you know, for ourselves, for the benefit of our children, or if they don't have children, you know, for whoever is going to, sur- to survive them. So that they make sure that they get what they need and that the arrangements that they want are made for, for themselves. And they can do that. So it's it's just, how do you start any conversation? Uh, somebody has to take the leadership yeah. in the family, whether so, it's the children or the older person. Somebody has to start uh, that conversation, acknowledging that it's a uh, sensitive topic, and it's a difficult topic, but one that has to be handled. It's a fact of life. Yeah. Any other final comments before we finish up today? I'll just, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. <laughs> and thank you for Andrea Rogers for taking the time to come and be on our program and uh, open, hopefully open some conversations up in our community about this very important topic. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA, Petaluma, California. And we look forward to seeing, uh, not seeing you, but uh, being here for you in two weeks. Thank you.